0: In this next hour, we hear about the Electoral College, and whether it's bad for our democracy, and if so, why we should abolish it and how to do it. This talk is a PowerPoint presentation prepared by the League of Women Voters of Illinois with a script read here by Eileen Nettleton and Joy Cardeen. We also hear comments by Andrea Kaminsky, past Executive Director of the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin. The talk took place on November 7, 2018, at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Community in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials and the PowerPoint on the League's website at lwvdanecounty.org. First we hear from Mary Anglem, who introduces the speakers.
1: Thank you for being here. I hope you'll find this a refreshing and revitalizing experience, because I think we're in for a treat. The League of Women Voters of Illinois, including many local chapters in Illinois, has put together a fascinating review of one of the United States hallmark political institutions, the Electoral College. The program is a great example of what League chapters working together can achieve. It reminds us of the reasons why the founders came up with this mechanism in the first place, how it has performed over two centuries, and lets us look at whether it has usefulness today. If it doesn't, what should we do about it? This topic is a good reminder that although the League is nonpartisan, it is not neutral on issues that it has studied and uh, taken a position on. The League has called for the abolition of the Electoral College since 1970, and reaffirmed his position as recently as last July. I didn't realize that the Electoral College still commanded much attention, but at the 2018 National Convention, I was surprised to hear several passionate exchanges on whether one approach to the Electoral College problem, the National Popular Vote Interstate Pact, should be part of our 2018 to 2020 program as uh, the League. Um, It was added by vote of the General Assembly. Far from being a musty historical footnote with a few annoying features, the Electoral College continues to have very current impact on our ideal of one person, one vote. Our readers tonight should be familiar to all of you. Arlene Nettleson is the president of our Dane County League, um, and I'm so pleased she's here so that you can all get a good look at her and know her the next time you meet her. Um, she's a 12-year member of the League. She has a strong background in education and much experience in voter registration, voter education, and the many other in-front-of-the-scene and behind-the-scene tasks for the League and other organizations. Joy Cardine was for years the host of Wisconsin Public Radio's morning show up there at 6 a.m. <laughs> through 9 a.m. morning after morning after morning, No doubt you have all had a chance to enjoy her wide knowledge of state and national issues and her excellent interviewing skills. In fact, I found that Joy broadcast at least seven interviews on the Electoral College since the early 2000s. Um, Arlene and Joy agreed to participate tonight with the caveat that they are not experts in constitutional law or history. So please don't expect them to have scholarly insights into the subject. Our main purpose tonight is to ask you, the audience, for your ideas about how we could or should make this a league, this, this league position a more prominent part of our organizational mission. To help us think about it, we will welcome Andrea Kaminsky, who recently retired from her position as the executive director of the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin, and who is still active as the league's lobbyist at the state level. We'll ask her to comment briefly
2: on what citizens can do to influence elected decision makers. The League of Women Voters is a nonpartisan political organization that encourages informed and active participation in government, works to increase understanding of major public policy issues, and influences public policy through education and advocacy. The League is a natural home for the movement to abolish the Electoral College because the League is about making democracy work for everyone. The League is specifically and proudly nonpartisan, which means that it can work to improve our democracy without partisan rancor and can help unite people around a common purpose. It has national reach and a trusted voice, as well as over 500 local leagues across the nation that are comprised of citizens like us working to improve our democracy. The League of Women Voters recommends many changes to our election system that would increase fair and representative participation in our democracy. From issues such as voter information and registration to candidate selection election procedures. Today we'll talk about how the Electoral College damages our democracy and how the League is working to abolish it in favor of direct popular vote for electing the president and vice president. They adopted this position in 1970 and most recently updated it in 2010.
3: First we'll talk about where the Electoral College comes from. Why did the framers of the Constitution create the Electoral College? This is a discussion which could and has taken up several book chapters. We'll try to distill it down to its essential elements as understood by scholars who have tried to answer this question. The framers most... Important consideration was that they wanted to limit the potential for corruption and concentration of power and to maintain independence between the executive and legislative branches. Therefore, they wanted a method other than having Congress select the president, which was the method originally suggested by the delegates. So why not just elect the president directly by the people? Some of the Constitution's framers worried that large distances and lack of communication would make the people ill-informed about the candidates and unlikely to choose the best person. They worried that the people would be easily misled by a few designing men or would (laughs) simply vote for the candidate from their own state. They wanted some kind of intermediary system. It's worth noting that very few of the framers were worried about angry mobs hijacking the selection of the president. The worries were more about how a vast population spread over a large country would be able to make an informed choice. There was some element of the ongoing tension between the northern and southern states as well. Slaveholding states did not want direct election because they wanted their enslaved people to count as three-fifths of a person in determining the number of electors the state received. Remember, this was the arithmetic that was used to determine their numbers in the House of Representatives. So having the elector system artificially boosted the voting representation of slave-holding states, just as in Congress. Whereas a direct popular vote would only count the number of people who could vote, which of course did not include enslaved people. In fact, evidence suggests that there was a lot of discussion, confusion, and changing of minds during the process of figuring out the electoral system, the election system. It was one of the last issues discussed at the exhausting, long, hot, contentious convention, and fatigue and impatience may very well have played some role in its adoption. It had broad but unenthusiastic support and seemed like the best they could do at the time. The second choice of many, but the first choice of few, with little idea how it would play out in reality. One historian called it a jerry-rigged improvisation. Most of the framers did intend for the selection of the president to be based on the popular wishes of the citizenry, with the elector system in an intermediary system intended to breach the difficulties of distance and communication. James Madison considered the elector system to be the best thing to direct selection, saying that the president is indirectly derived from the choice of the people. However, there is some evidence that they also expected the electors to exercise their own discretion in the selection of the president as a bulwark against corruption, bias, or misinformation. But the electors have almost always acted as a rubber stamp on the votes of the people, with very few exceptions. In those instances where an elector has voted differently than the state's voter dictated, they have generally met with a great deal of protest and anger, which is to say the people expected the electors to be a rubber stamp on the will of the people and have never been interested in them exercising their own discretion. Notice that none of the founders' original concerns remain relevant today. Citizens are quite able to become informed about the candidates no matter where they live. The framers' concern about the corruption and concentration of power that would come if Congress selected the president is still valid, but no one is proposing that we move to this system. And any notion that we might need electors to exercise their own discretion to overturn a so-called poor decision by the people has just not been borne out over time. The people don't want this, and the electors have really done it. So in looking at how the Electoral College came about, it's clear that this is not a foundational text of our Constitution that should not or cannot be changed. It is an imperfect system that tried to address concerns of the framers at the time. Just as we have changed our system of electing the vice president and senators, we can also change our system of electing the president if we think it's necessary to improve our democracy. And there is ample evidence that this system is directly damaging our democracy and does, in fact, need to be changed.
2: Why does the League of Women Voters take the position to abolish the Electoral College? It's really very simple. It comes down to the concept of one person, one vote. The unintended result of the Electoral College is to put the choice of president and vice president in the hands of voters in only a few so-called battleground states or swing states. I don't have to tell you the names of these states because we are all very, very familiar with them. They are four of our well-known swing states, and they are among the 19 states that received all campaign visits from the two presidential candidates in 2008. The other 31 states received not a single presidential campaign visit. Well, you might ask, so what? In the age of television and smartphones, we can easily watch the candidates' speeches, no matter where they make them, and we can get the highlights from any number of news outlets. True. But the problem with this system goes well beyond our ability to hear what the candidates have to say. Part of the League's core mission is to encourage the informed and active participation of citizens in government. As such, perhaps the most disturbing aspect of the electoral college system is that it creates a disincentive to vote for citizens living in the non-battleground states, which is the majority of the people in our country. If you live in Illinois or Mississippi, Why should you bother going out to vote on a cold or rainy day when you know your state is going to go blue or red anyway? The data from 2016 bear this out. The percentage of eligible voters who cast a vote for president was significantly lower in non-swing states compared to the swing states. The Electoral College decreases participation in our democracy. This is bad for democracy.
3: Another significant negative effect of the Electoral College system is that it polarizes our electorate and exaggerates our sense of being a divided nation, a nation of red versus blue. Did you know that in Alabama in 2016, 35% of the voters chose Hillary Clinton, or that 32% of California voters chose Donald Trump. That's a lot of people, not a fringe minority, but a significant portion of the population of these states. And these are two solidly red or blue states. What about Colorado, where 43% of voters went for Trump, or in Georgia, where 46% went for Clinton? doesn't matter. You look at this map and all you see is red and blue, right and left, black and white. There are no centrists. There are no complicated middle ground. There is no reason to even talk to people in those other states because they are just too different from me. Their views are too extreme. This map with which we've all become so familiar with is extremely damaging to our national unity and our ability to see the great variety of public opinions that exist everywhere and that deserve to be heard. Indeed, they need to be heard as diverse opinions are as critical to democracy as the vote itself. Without the Electoral College, we wouldn't have to see our election results through this distorted lens. What if the election results simply looked like two numbers, both very large, even in the most lopsided of victories? Remember Reagan versus Mondale in 1984? You may remember it as the most lopsided electoral college victory in modern history, which it was, but you probably don't remember that more than 37 million people voted for Mondale. That's 41% of the voters. That's not a trivial number, and it highlights the way the Electoral College simply erases the diversity of opinion in our democracy. Because when we see it through the Electoral College, almost all of those so-called blue votes are utterly forgotten, erased. Where did all those Mondale voters go? They're gone. They just don't exist. All we see is 525 to 13, the Electoral College outcome. If we begin to see the election results like this, we might begin to see ourselves as a part of a unified democracy, choosing our leader together no matter where we live. Might we become more open to diverse, complicated opinions among our neighbors and fellow citizens, more willing to live among people who disagree with us? Imagine if, instead of seeing ourselves as red or blue, we simply saw ourselves as Americans. The results in two recent elections point us, of course, to another serious problem with the Electoral College, which is it can lead to a presidential winner who did not receive a majority of the votes. This happened five times in our history, and it's the main reason most people find the Electoral College troubling. You may have heard someone say, yes, all of this is true, but here's why the Electoral College still makes sense. We'd like to walk through the most common myths and misperceptions about what the Electoral College does and does not accomplish, what it was meant to do, and how it's impacting our democracy. These are not just fringe theories, by the way. These are the main points that supporters of the Electoral College use to defend this antiquated system, and none of them stands up under scrutiny.
0: You're listening to The Electoral College, Is It Bad for Our Democracy?, Presented by the League of Women Voters of Dane County.
2: Myth number one. Without the Electoral College, our Presidents would all be chosen by a couple of big states like California, New New York, and Texas. Let's run through the numbers to see how it would actually play out in an election by national popular vote. Let's say for the sake of this example that every state in the union voted 60% to 40% for the same candidate. An absolute landslide, an unbelievably strong preference for one candidate. And let's see how many states it would take to get us over the 50% threshold to victory if we elected the president by the national popular vote total, going in order from the largest states down to the smallest. California has the most voters and 60 percent of its voters would represent 7 percent of the national total. Next is Texas. So we'll add that to the total. Remember, in this example, we have 60 percent of voters choosing the same candidate in every state. So we're seeing how long it would take for that candidate to get more than 50% of the votes. Now, we add Florida. Here's New York. Now, we add Pennsylvania. Now, Illinois. And we're still not even halfway there. Let's add a half dozen more states and see where we get. In fact, it would take the votes of 30 states to get us over the 50% threshold even in this incredibly lopsided scenario. In reality, of course, California and Texas might go for different candidates, in essence, canceling each other out. And the margins of victory would likely be much smaller in many of the other states, which means that it would take even more states' voters to get up to 51%. And you can do this same exercise for cities, by the way. The 10 largest cities in the country only make up about 10% of the vote. If the largest 100 cities all voted unanimously for the same candidate, it would still only get us up to 30% of the total vote. Nowhere near the 51% needed to win. And this top 100 list includes cities like Laredo, Texas, and Spokane, Washington. These are cities with populations in the 200,000s. It is simply mathematically impossible for an election by popular vote to be determined by just the largest states or the largest cities. The fact is that direct election by popular vote would ensure that every person is equally represented, regardless of where they live. Voters from swing states would count just the same as voters from non-swing states. Voters from the city would count just the same as voters from the country. A California Republican's vote would count just as much as a California Democrat's. Let's look specifically at California, where the presidential vote is split just as it is in all states. 32% of California voters went for Donald Trump in 2016. Once the state's votes were totaled, all four and a half million of those Trump votes were erased. Why should only a portion of a state's votes count in choosing the president of all the people? In a national popular vote system, those votes would be added to the national total along with the votes from all other states, regardless of who got the most in each state, and regardless of whether that state is big or small. The fact is that we no longer would be voting by state, but by person. So a California voter would get no more say in our presidential election than a voter from Mississippi, Rhode Island, Kansas, or any other state. This is what the framers intended when they unanimously agreed with James Madison's statement that the president is to act for the people, not for the
3: states. Myth number two. Smaller, less populated states need the protection of the electoral college to ensure their interests are represented by the president. The fact is there is no coherent small state or large state interest that needs protecting by the Electoral College. Even the smallest state has substantial diversity within it, and it is a fallacy to suggest that when a state goes red or blue that this represents the interests of the entire state. The concerns of a farmer are likely to be very different than those of a computer programmer, whether they live in New Hampshire, Nebraska, or any other small state. Small states represent a great diversity of economic interests, and they share many of these interests with large states. For example, agriculture. Most farmers live in states with large populations, such as Texas, Florida, California, and Illinois and they share economic interests with farmers from smaller states all over the country. The great political battles of American history have been fought between opposing ideologies or economic interests, not between large states and small states. There is no coherent small state interest that needs protecting by the Electoral College. This the representatives of small states do not vote as a block in Congress, and their citizens do not vote as a block for president. The numbers from the 2016 election show this emphatically. The smallest one third of states, those with fewer than six electoral votes, did not all go for the same candidate. In fact, they were exactly evenly split, with eight going for Clinton and eight going for Trump. Small states do not vote as a block and they do not benefit from the Electoral College. In fact, smaller states are routinely ignored by presidential candidates under the current system. Instead, the candidates focus their time on the so called swing states that decide the election. Nineteen states received all campaign visits from the two presidential candidates in 2008 2008, virtually ignoring the 31 other states, both large and small. So there is no basis for the myth that smaller, less populated states need the protection of the Electoral College to ensure that their interests are represented by the president. And in fact, the Electoral College actually diminishes the rightful representation, the residents of larger states. For example, Virginia's population is almost nine times larger than Delaware's but it only gets about four times as many electors because electors are based on the number of senators and representatives from each state. Is this fair?
2: Myth number three, the electoral college protects the rights of the minority from the tyranny of the majority. Protecting minority rights is a critical part of democratic societies and the founding fathers designed our government accordingly. As a result, two of our three branches of government are designed to ensure the protection of minority rights. The first is the courts. Their role is to ensure the constitutional rights of the individual, regardless of the opinion of the majority of citizens. The second is the Senate, in which every state, regardless of population size, gets two representatives, This ensures that Wyoming gets heard just as loudly as New York, even though more people live in New York. The courts and the Senate protect the rights of minority groups. The president is supposed to represent the interests of all Americans as fairly and equally as possible. That means one person, one vote.
3: Myth number four. Abolishing the Electoral College will mostly benefit Democratic candidates. Modern analyses show that in 1960, Republican Richard Nixon actually won the popular vote by about 48,000 votes over Democrat John Kennedy. This is the Electoral College map for the 2004 election, where George Bush won over John Kerry with 3 million more popular votes. But if John Kerry had received only 60,000 more votes in Ohio, he would have won the Electoral College and thus the election, even though Bush would still have had nearly 3 million more popular votes. And on a more personal level, what about the Republican voter in so-called blue Vermont or the Democratic voter in so-called red Kansas? Neither of these voters feels that their vote for president counts. This is a disincentive for them to vote, and this is bad for democracy. The system can and has affected both parties. This is a nonpartisan issue.
2: How do we abolish the Electoral College? The League of Women Voters supports a constitutional amendment that would replace the Electoral College with direct election of the president. In theory, it's quite simple. Congress passes an amendment and then 38 states need to ratify it. Such an amendment has been proposed many times and the latest was in 2016 by Senator Barbara Boxer of California and by Representative Charles Rangel of New York. The language is very simple. Proposing an amendment to the Constitution of the United States to abolish the Electoral College and to provide for the direct popular election of the president and vice president of the United States. Each bill had only a couple of co-sponsors and no action was taken. We need to build a strong, loud, persistent voice of the people, urging our representatives in Congress to introduce and co-sponsor this bill again this year. We need to build momentum to make this an issue that Congress can no longer ignore. Now getting to a constitutional amendment will nonetheless take time. It's not going to happen this year. The League of Women Voters is currently focusing on what we're doing today, which is starting discussions about where the electoral college comes from and how it's bad for our democracy. And perhaps more importantly, we want people to understand that passing a constitutional amendment is possible and can happen. Many of us probably think that ratifying new amendments is a thing of the past, something for a bygone era of political unity, a quaint anachronism. Here's a timeline showing the dates that all amendments after the Bill of Rights were ratified. You can see that our history includes flurries of constitutional activity punctuated by long periods of inactivity. There was a period of 60 years between the first two clumps, then another gap of 43. There were 18 years between the amendments of the 1930s and 1950s and 60s, then a gap of 21. It's been 26 years since the last constitutional amendment was passed in 1992. What distinguishes these periods of constitutional activity? They tended to be periods of great national political activity where the citizens were feeling that our democracy was in crisis, where the demand for change across our society was persistent and loud. There was the period after the Civil War, the progressive era of the turn of the last century. And the civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s. We may be in the middle of another period of political activity, of demand for change. Only time will tell. But the level of activity we are seeing now and the guideline concerning the genuine concerns about the resilience of our democracy are remarkable. In fact, we may be on the verge of adding a 28th Amendment to the Constitution. The Equal Rights Amendment passed Congress in 1972, and as of two years ago, needed only three states to more to ratify it in order to become part of our Constitution. In 2017, Nevada ratified it. In 2018, Illinois ratified it. So if one more state ratifies, we will add the 28th Amendment to our Constitution. Amending the Constitution is not a thing of the past. It is a thing of right now. There is a process for doing so, and that process requires the citizenry to make it known to our legislators that we want change. We do that all the time with legislation. It's the same for amendments. We just have to build a stronger consensus and a louder voice. It is, as always, one step at a time.
0: You're listening to The Electoral College, Is It Bad for Our Democracy? Presented by the League of Women Voters of Dane County.
3: Because of the long time frame expected for an amendment to pass and be ratified, the League also supports an interim measure that would effectively nullify the Electoral College and result in the election of the president by popular vote, while we continue working on a long-term constitutional amendment. This measure is called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, and it would guarantee the presidency to the candidate who receives the most popular votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia combined. It pledges a state's electoral votes to the candidate who wins the national popular vote, and it would not take effect until enacted by states possessing a majority of the electoral votes 270 votes the national popular vote interstate compact has been enacted into law in 12 states with 172 electoral votes the compact will take effect when enacted by states with 98 more electoral votes this is a nonpartisan issue that has been passed by strong majorities in both Republican-controlled and Democratic-controlled state houses and senates. One reform which the league specifically rejects is the voting by electors based on proportional representation in lieu of the present winner-takes-all method. The Constitution says that states are free to assign their electors however they see fit, and winner-take-all is not the only option. Currently, Maine and Nebraska assign their electors proportionate to each candidate's vote percentage in the state. So, for example, if 40% of Nebraska voters choose candidate A, then candidate, that candidate would get two of Nebraska's five electoral votes. The problem with this system is that it's actually fairly likely that no candidate would receive the 270 electoral vote majority needed to win. This, according to the Constitution, would send the election of the president to the House of Representatives, where each state, regardless of population, would receive only one vote. This would further remove the election of the president from the will of the people and would be in direct contrast to the intent of the framers of the Constitution." All right, you're probably scratching your head about now trying to figure out why this system would make it unlikely that a candidate would receive 270 electoral votes. The reason is that we always have more than just two parties running for president. There are third parties and fourth parties and beyond. In the 2016 election, votes were actually cast for 31 different candidates, plus none of the above in a few states. Let's run through a quick example with the 2016 election. Here you can see that Arizona has 11 electoral votes. 45 of the voters, 45% of voters chose Clinton, 50% chose Trump, and 5% chose other candidates. If we allot the electoral votes proportionately rather than winner takes all, we get five votes for Clinton, five and a half for Trump, and one half for the others. Here's Colorado with nine electoral votes 47% for Clinton, 44% for Trump, and 9% for the others. And you can see how their electoral votes get apportioned accordingly. You can start to see what's happening here as the other candidates are taking just a little bit away from the total electoral votes in each state until we finally get to the total. And we see that neither candidate has reached 270 votes. So the 2016 election would have gone to the House of Representatives to elect the president had we used a proportional means of allotting the electoral votes. The simplest, most permanent solution is to elect the president by national popular vote.
2: Abolishing the electoral college would be a common sense solution to update a system that most Americans agree is utterly out of date, confusing, and downright silly. It's time to start building the momentum that will once and for all abolish this dysfunctional system of electing our president. This may seem like a daunting task, but remember that we've amended the Constitution to change the way we elect senators, to impose term limits on the presidency, to include Washington DC in the election of the president, to eliminate the poll tax, and to change the voting age to 18. All amendments that affect the way we elect our representatives in Washington. There is no reason we cannot abolish the Electoral College if we decide to do it. So, let's get to work. That's why we brought Andrea here. (laughs) Here's what, what you can do now. First, spread the word. Talk to your friends and family about the Electoral College, the harm it causes, and how it can be abolished. Host a presentation, or give one yourself to any community group you're a part of. You can find all of our materials, these, on our website, including this word for word script to go with the presentation. We, we they, created this pre- presentation specifically to be used by as many people as possible. Next email, abolish college at gmail.com to get more information and email updates on what they are doing. Follow them on Facebook and share their posts on social media. Talk to your senators and congressional reps about their views on the Electoral College. If your league does legislative interviews, this is the perfect time to have a conversation. If you are seeing a state office holder, ask if they would support their state voting yes to an amendment to abolish the Electoral College. If you attend a candidate forum, ask for their stance on abolishing the Electoral College. We need our legislators to begin hearing from us on this issue, and we need to keep talking about it. And finally, you can donate to the League of Women Voters of Illinois Electoral College Committee. A donation of any size will demonstrate that the movement has widespread support and will help educate voters and grow the impact. So, we thank the Illinois League of Women Voters and the groups that work together on the production of this. And at this time, we are pleased to invite Andrea Kaminsky as representing State League of Women Voters. Andrea has lots of experience in how you help make things happen. So, Andrea,
4: well, thank you, Eileen and, and Joy, for that presentation. Um, I'm going to start by saying I'm not an expert in constitutional law either, <laughs> but um, Eileen invited me to, uh, to come and talk to you a little bit about um, a new role that I'll be playing at the state, in the State League office and uh, also some effective ways to lobby our, our state and federal l- legislators and what we can do in particular to um, to get either the national popular vote, um, interstate compact or a constitutional amendment to abolish the electoral college passed. So I'll start with the easy one. my new role. Um, I lobbying was part of my job when I uh, served as the um, executive director of the in the state office as your executive director but and um, now I'm I, it I'll be doing it on a more dedicated um, part-time contracted position with the state office the state board decided to make this move and and um, and Uh, take the lobbying out of the executive director's job in part because our organization's growing and our new executive director, Erin Grunzey, she's very capable and very wonderful but um, it's a bigger organization and and she's got plenty to do just to see to the well-being of our organization and represent us. Um, Also... Uh, We want to, this is part of a broader effort to strengthen our state legislative committee, which is chaired by Ingrid Roth, and uh, have a greater impact in the state capitol. So so I'll be doing this actually starting later this month. Uh, The legislative committee will be meeting for the first time um, for the coming session, uh, we usually do this after the fall election because we want, to, uh, we want to get together and start thinking about what we really want to focus on in the coming uh, legislative session when we've got a new legislature in place. So a- as for some effective ways to lobby state or federal uh, legislators, I- I'll just say that one of the league's major strengths is the fact that the League speaks with one voice. Um, on, on state legislative matters, the, the state legislative committee and the lobbyist you know, who works with them um, will, will take the lead in our advocacy as we always do in state matters. And uh, my job along with the committee will be to advance our League positions in the state capital and to help you to do that as well. Another league strength is our grassroots structure. Um, the state office will be providing tools and resources to local leagues and also action alerts. Uh, we'll be pushing those out to, to members um, so that you can um, they, they will they'll be they'll make it easier and for us to encourage you. To contact your legislators on state matters and your and your congressional reps, uh, the senators and congressional rep on um, federal matters. Um, and and when when local members when members do that, they do it on uh, as individual constituents. Because that's who the the legislators want to hear from, is their constituents. And so you're not speaking for the League, but you're speaking uh, using resources that the state office will provide um, to help you speak on the issues and uh, if, if you support the League positions. Uh, for federal uh, legislation, it's, uh, it's the National League that will be, uh, take the lead and will pass their, their materials on to the local leagues and our members. Now, we did have action alerts that went out in the last legislative session. Um, does everybody get the emails from the state office? If you're not getting them, you can get them. Um, it, you can call the, the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin or send an email and uh, go through the website and use the contact form, it, but whatever. You can ask to receive those um, action alerts as they come up. They'll tell you when, um, when there's something important happening and when your voice can really make a difference, and they'll give you um, some, some words and some ideas and information to make that a little bit easier last in the last session, we also had we had a, a, a phone app, a mobile phone app um, that some people were using. We were just kind of testing it. and um, I'm not sure we haven't decided whether we'll, we will continue with that. But uh, that was also it, it would send you a, a quick action alert and tell you, contact your your representative now and um, and here's here's what you can say. Now I was also asked to talk a little bit about what it's going to take and what what our role can be in getting either the national popular vote interstate com- compact or a constitutional amendment to abolish the electoral college adopted. The League's national position on which on which our our stance our our position to abolish the electoral college is based our national position on Um, election of the president or selection of the president is to promote the election of the president and vice president by direct popular vote support uniform national voting qualifications and procedures for presidential elections. So that's the basic position And, um, and so now the National League based on the program that was adopted at, at the National Convention this past summer will be um, providing materials and resources to help us advocate for that position. Um, when it comes to amending the US Constitution, well, you saw the, the, the process that it'll take. First, it has to be, um, a bill has to be passed, has to be introduced and passed by two-thirds of the members of both houses of Congress, and then it has to be ratified by three-quarters of the states, 38 states. There's no time limit um, between those two things, but um, you know, we all have to hope that we'll live long enough to see that happen. So, uh, <laughs> and, and the bill needs to be introduced again. And Honestly, um, after seeing uh, over the past few years what uh, Mark Pocan, Representative Pocan, has been uh, introducing, the kinds of bills he's been introducing in Congress, I don't see why he shouldn't introduce it or certainly co-sponsor it, and we have to tell him that. We have to let him know. And so what, what the Illinois League said is our role will be to contact our legislators repeatedly and persistently and just keep at it. So that would be the long-term solution. But um, as, as Joy uh, said, the, the League has also stated that the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is an acceptable interim solution. It's kind of a workaround that would guarantee that even if we don't abolish the the, um, Electoral College, that the Electoral College would indeed award the presidency to the candidate who won the national popular vote. Um, In that case, the the states have to pass legislation um, adopting a national popular vote bill and um, as uh, I think it was um, Eileen who pointed out that we still need, that, that so far 11 states and the, the District of Columbia have passed the bills representing 172 electoral votes. We have to get above 270 electoral votes. So another 98 electoral votes are still needed to activate the National Popular Vote Compact, and... Um, uh, out of that 98, well, Wisconsin has 10 electoral votes. We could be a tenth of that. So, in this case, our job as advocates will be to encourage our state legislators to introduce and pass um, a national popular vote bill and I have that signed into law by the governor. That's going to be a pretty steep order, steep climb in Wisconsin um, uh, in the legislature. Uh, and, but the, our, our legislative committee will be meeting later this month, and we're going to be discussing, I, I guess, this month and also in January, what the priorities should be. And in that mix will be what national is... Uh, is it has now identified as, as the league's national program um, and so this will be in the mix and uh, we'll be we'll be working that out um, and you know, we also want as we try to have more impact certainly in the state capital we're hoping that um, some some of you will um, help us we we're, we're, we don't have Concrete plans, yet, so we're not ready for, for volunteers to line up immediately, but we will be talking with you in the future. Um, we'd like to have some members of the Dane County League help us in going to the ca- state capitol and knocking on doors and, um, and uh, speaking at, at hearings about uh, some of the league bills that we want to get passed or others that we want to hold off. So I'm going to stop there and um, see if anybody has any questions.
5: Thank you.
6: I would like to know, um, since we had referenda on ballot, one for marijuana and the other for uh, appraising stores, what do you think about the league proposing a referendum, although it's not binding, But if the leagues, the various leagues throughout the state could propose referenda in their counties or areas, uh, granted we don't have an election, a national election for two more years, but yet we have local elections coming up next
4: year, what do you think about that route to at least spread the word? that's That's a great idea. It would have to come from the local leagues because they would be doing the work on that you know to to a great extent I' getting referenda it, it would be in I guess their county boards county board sort of like the fair maps refer, referenda that are just doing great, but that would truly be a local league activity. It might be something where the state league could provide some some resources, but yeah. I think we saw energized people, especially young people, in this past election, and this might be a time to give them something else to work on, and this might be a very good thing. Do you think that the momentum here can be carried over into future elections? Well, I certainly hope so, and it would seem to me that that this electoral college issue would be one that young people would get behind because they do you know it's just such a matter of fairness and um and it and 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 it seems so illogical
7: one of the other advantages of getting rid of the electoral college is that it would incentivize against the uh, idea of restricting people's right to vote with all these mechanisms to Disenfranchised people, because you'd want to have everybody in the state have an opportunity to share their votes on the national issues, and at least on a regional basis, if nothing else, that would that would work for everybody in the state uh, to have more people voting uh, rather than less people voting. So it would be an incentive to get rid of all these. Restrictions on people's rights to vote
4: makes sense to me. You know, and when it comes to uh, motivating younger people, it, it, the, you mentioned how this is an antiquated system. And I don't know about you, but in my family, the young people are don't have a lot of patience for antiquated systems. <laughs> you know, things that don't make sense because, but but you just hold mm. on to them because that's the way we've always done it. They don't. they, they aren't interested in that. So who is it that has a stake in keeping the Electoral College at this point? That I think that's a really good question. Um, based on, the, based on the, the presentation that the Illinois League pro- provided for us, it looks like it isn't good for anyone. Um, it was good for the Trump campaign in the last election. You can say that. And it was good, you know, it's it, it's been good what four or five times for a particular candidate in the history of the country. So um, that may be something we have to understand before we're going to be able to really advocate is um, but it seems that from the presentation, it would appear that that the arguments in favor of it are are just myths. It, it's the kind of thing where people, believe these things, but they aren't necessarily true. And so they think they have a stake. And they need to be educated.
5: Thank
6: you. I don't mean to be an alarmist, but something that I've been concerned about with the continuation of the electoral college, when you have people's popular vote being uh, not only disrespected, being just uh, ignored, <laughs> um, that to me really seeds the, um a revolution. And again, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I think w- for the stability of our country, this really needs to be looked at.
7: Thank you. I think I don't quite understand exactly how the compact, the National Vote Compact, can be established When I speak to people who are much more conversant with the Constitution than I am, um, I find that they sort of feel that that is not some way that you can actually go about it, that you would have to go through an amendment, but clearly an amendment to the Constitution is unlikely to happen for very many years. So the issue that I think needs a little more clarification in my mind is how the League expects the Compact to be actually brought into operation, and whether it has to be done piecemeal through various states, or whether we need to put a push so that something happens all at one time.
4: Um, Thank you for that question. the, um, The Compact has to be, it's created through state level legislation in individual states. And what did we say? Eleven states plus the District of Columbia have already passed these bills and enacted them in their states. And the states have individually have the right to determine how they will assign their their electoral their how they'll award their electoral votes. And so what what these bills do is they say our state, if we do it in Wisconsin, Wisconsin will award its electoral votes, all 10 of them, to the the winner of the popular election. And so if you have enough states that individually pass this law, then you're you're, you're, you're still using the electoral college but what you're doing is you're you're forcing the electoral college to support the the winner of the of the public election the um, popular election. Can
2: you add the contingent
4: addition? Oh, okay. All right. Um, the the comment is that I, this is part of the law that that they're passing. Part of the bill they're passing mm-hmm. is that they say they will do this, they'll award their, their um, electoral votes to the winner of the popular election if enough states pass the, the, the law to make it, make a difference, You know to make it work. What,
7: what then is enough? Enough states?
4: Well, it would be enough states to add up to 270 electoral votes, mm-hmm. and we're currently at Two hundred uh, one hundred and seventy two. Yeah. So we
7: would be working to get Wisconsin to do that. That's
4: right. In okay. here in in our state, we would be working to get our our legislature to introduce a bill here. hmm It seems to me that the in order to propel this, it's a question of education. And as a retired teacher, you know where that takes me. <laughs> as I was watching your presentation, um, I became more and more convinced that the numbers that you chose to show us show that the Electoral College should be dispensed with. I'd like to be able to try some of those numbers myself. So now I'm thinking, what if there was, since, since I know how to use a spreadsheet, let me just say a spreadsheet, that would be available to social studies teachers to bring to their classes and say, play with this, try different mm-hmm. scenarios, in the hope of creating a groundswell among younger people. That's a great idea. And in fact, there is a computer program that's called the redistricting game that that shows it's it's on a different topic, but it shows what happens if if you draw the lines this way or the the lines that way on, on district maps. And um, you could do the same thing, well somebody could do the same thing <laughs> for um, the electoral college um, where, where you, could, you could try out different, you know, well what if Wisconsin went 60% for this candidate and 40 for that one, what would that do and, and try doing that for different states? That's a great idea. We, we just need someone to, we need a programmer. <laughs>
5: Well, yeah.
8: <laughs>
5: <laughs> Thank you. I have a quick question. Are there other groups advocating for the abolishment of the electoral college besides the League of Women Voters?
4: That's a great question. I'm sure there are. Yeah. Did you, did you well, in your there research?
3: There is a, a group that. There is a group. There is a group that calls itself uh, the the. INTERSTATE COMPACT uh, oh. ELECTORAL COLLEGE GROUP, ADVOCACY GROUP. There, IT, it EXISTS. So. IT'S
4: CALLED FAIR VOTE, I THINK. Yeah. I JUST FOUND THEIR WEBSITE. Okay. YEAH.
3: SO IT'S NOT JUST THE LEAGUE. YEAH.
2: BUT THAT'S THE uh, NATIONAL COMPACT, POPULAR VOTE COMPACT. THAT'S NOT ABOLISHING THE ELECTORAL right. COLLEGE. Right.
4: YES, I, I THINK YOU BROUGHT UP A GOOD POINT, THOUGH, IS THAT WE SHOULD KNOW WHO OUR PARTNERS ARE if we're going to do this because we can't do it by ourselves. <laughs> so you felt as though our legislature would not pass the compact? Did I hear you say that? Or is there something that we can do to encourage that? It has to be both branches of the legislature, correct? Right. That would do it by
6: a majority?
4: Well, to pass the, the national the compact, um, they, it would just be a matter of, of passing a bill, um, it, it, as the legislature has been the last few years, I think that would be a steep climb, but things are gonna be different now. We don't know what's possible, and um, we can certainly aspire and, and try to get them to do the same. And can I think that's a good idea. Maybe Tammy Baldwin would like to do the same thing in the Senate yeah in terms of the new in terms of the electoral college, yeah, and um but as we said, it's it doesn't have to um, it doesn't it doesn't benefit one party right. yeah
9: well, this seems to me a really good idea, but I also am a little worried about in a close election, couldn't you need recounts in almost every state? I mean the way it is now, you know, sometimes you have recounts in like, Two or three states, but I could see, say, the margin was, you know, 120,000 across the country. You you could really have recounts in every state, trying to figure out the the actual margin. I I could see this sort of dragging the election out endlessly.
4: Are you you referring to the constitutional amendment? uh, Well, no. Just say just
9: say it went by popular vote. Okay. And then. The margin across the whole country was, you know, like hundred thousand something small. I mean, couldn't that require almost a recount in every state? Then
4: I I don't know. I mean, that's we're we're working in hypothetical things here, Um, you know. But then, then again, the alternative is that we have presidents elected who didn't win, who didn't win the popular vote. So
9: the electoral
7: college already has that problem because they have to wait until the the votes of each state are counted for them to determine how the Electoral College votes are distributed uh, under the rules of that state. And the Electoral College doesn't meet until quite a bit after the election. Somebody else can remember the date.
5: Seems to me that this is timely, because it's not going to get done by 2020, which is the next presidential election. So it's not threatening to President Trump Therefore, it's timely to take this on now before we get into another four years. That's a good
6: point. This is just a general question about us contacting legislators. I've always wondered, because I do do it a few times a year, is it a good idea to only contact the person that you can vote for or is it a a good idea to, do we have any influence if we're in one legislative district and we're corresponding with somebody in another, or for example, even with our senators, if they think we're in Dane County and we only vote Democratic, and if we contact a Republican senator, does it even pay us uh, for us to contact people that we don't vote for or who don't think we voted for them
4: well you certainly have the most sway with your own people who actually represent you and whom you whom you can vote for um, and but you know sometimes we want people to contact um, oh the members of a particular legislative committee um, but still, the best thing, and, and so that's good, that's fine, and and some legislators, some legislators make it very clear that they won't even read your thing if if you're not in if you're not in their district. Um, but I think I think some read it, or some count how many emails they get or whatever, and um, so I, I you know I I don't think it hurts but i you certainly have the most impact in your own district
6: well they can prevent whatever maybe the popular will but it won't go anywhere
4: well that's that's one way they can uh, that's that is one way that they influence you know that they influence the outcome and you have to let them know that you want you think this deserves a vote just like we all think Uh, The the league has been telling the the chairs of the uh, elections committees in the state senate and state assembly that the redistricting reform bills deserve at least a hearing, if nothing else. They've been stonewalling on that. Um, You just have to let them know. Oh, um,
8: so this conversation has uh, been really interesting. And it really made me wonder whose votes are getting suppressed with the Electoral College. Um, And to me, it went back to the three-fifths compromise. um, And we still see the vestiges today in that compromise and the number of electoral um, votes that a state has. Um, so I think that it seems like there is still a race issue when it comes to the electoral college and restricting votes. And if you looked at a larger picture and see how votes are being restricted in other ways, such as voter purges, or also um, looking at inmates and not allowing them to vote as well, um, we see that there are there's a larger issue of race in preserving the electoral college. Um, And it it seems like that might be another way that we'd have to combat voter suppression, not just in terms of saying one vote per person, but also looking at these other kind of cultural or social systems that create inequality.
4: Yeah, um, that sound, I, that's a good point, point. And, and this I guess the Electoral College is another form of uh, voter suppression. And, you know, we want people to vote. We also want their, their votes to count. Uh,
9: pardon my ignorance, but her question begs the question, or her comment begs the question on who selects the Electoral College. And, you know, that's where you can see the possibility okay. of suppression or bias or anything like that, so.
4: Okay, thank you. That
10: just, you know, I was thinking of this in a general issue of how do you get more people educated in a short period of time about this issue so it's not a few people contacting their legislators or whatever, and I'm thinking have people like Ken Burns who do series on interesting topics, whether, you know, you know, Vietnam series recently or whatever that really get people to watch, but this would be a fascinating topic, both from a historical standpoint. Yes, but where you're really getting people to put it on TV, a series, and and do, you know, fill out what you guys did with these slides in a very interesting way that gets more and more people understanding what this is about.
5: Thank you. Thank
10: you. I think this is going to need to be
5: our last question. This isn't a question. It's a, addressing that, do, does your call or your comment or your letter count? They count. They count whether they do something with it or not. But they do count. And I've, been, I've done um, advocacy with several legislators nationally and at the state level. Um, where I've asked is it worth it? And they said, and they've even told me the account every single call and every single comment.
4: Thank you. and And sometimes people ask, um, if if my if my legislator, I, I agree with everything my legislator does, so why should I call them? But your legislator needs needs to know that. They need the positive um, feedback. And they need to, so that when they stand on the assembly floor, they can say, I've received X number of calls about this.
2: Thank you so much. So we have a copy
8: of a movie, which is called Electoral Dysfunction. And it was put on, it was done by Mo Rocca, and she has the shirt. He came here and spoke, and um, she was on a panel with him. And we have a copy of it in our league office. It's called Electoral Dysfunction. You can look it up online. I think you can probably even stream it online. They even have a classroom edition.
2: Um, So that might help you, Doug. Good. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Andrea, so very much for sharing with us.
0: You've been listening to The Electoral College, Is It Bad for Our Democracy?, a PowerPoint presentation prepared by the League of Women Voters of Illinois with a script that's read by Eileen Nettleton and Joy Cardine. We also heard from Andrea Kaminsky, past Executive Director of the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin. The talk took place on November 7, 2018, at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Community in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials and this PowerPoint with the script at the League's website at lwvdanecounty.org. To find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.